There's a spirit here. A deeper need to understand why I am the way I am. No matter what you live through in your life, you are going to do great things. That's something that's holding me back that was passed on. What goes on with the mind and the body and the spirit. We're doing soul work. I read this a book this past week. And it was talking about your spirit helpers and how negative spirits and the spirit of addiction will sit and watch and wait for you to mess up. So when you're at your weakest moment, they'll, they'll come in there and take control of your life. But the good spirits, you have to ask for them to help. And I was sharing that information with my mom and she's, she's still an addict. And it's good to, to share with her some hands-on things that she can, she can implement right away. When you utilize alcohol to numb yourself or you utilize pills or, you know, drugs, that you're always in debt to that spirit. And they will take from you, whether it be your livelihood or your relationships or um, your energy, they'll, they'll take and you're always in debt. The person you just heard was part of a group of Native community leaders from across the state of Minnesota. In meetings like this, it is not uncommon for participants who know each other fairly well to talk about the pain, trauma, or addiction that is part of their lives. We're all dealing with something, even if it's just stress. In the United States today, Native Americans have the highest rates of addiction and substance abuse. 28.3% of Native Americans live in poverty. That's nearly 13% higher than the national poverty rate the highest rate of any racial group, and Native women and children face disproportionately high rates of domestic violence. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for our people between the ages of 10 and 34. But these are not our only inheritances. Like this young woman, many of us are doing the work of supporting our family members and our communities, seeking ways to reshape our story. This takes mapping a road into the future, but it also means looking back to understand how we got where we are what in our culture lies dormant, asleep, and what needs to be reawakened. Our stories didn't emerge out of vacuums, and the keys to healing them won't either. Yeah, I used to feel like I wasn't truly indigenous. Now I say me which get your money, do for sure. My name is Susan Bolio, and I'm from the Red Lake Nation in northern Minnesota. You're listening to a story about how our personal and collective histories as Native Americans make us what we are. It's a story about trauma and struggle, but also about the power we have as Indigenous people, as individuals, and as a community to disrupt trauma, to survive struggle, to generate healing, and move into thriving. Over the last 10 years, my work has involved Indigenous communities that are promoting their people's growth and development. This podcast is meant to reflect the increasing number of conversations that are focused not on what's wrong with us, but on what happened to us. Not on the deficits, but on our strengths, how we've survived as tribal peoples, and what's in us that can make each one of us a healer. We are all healers, even if we must begin first by healing the face in the mirror. That's why we're calling this podcast Remembering Resilience. About three years ago, I began directing the Tribal Near Sciences and Community Wisdom Project, 
designed to help tribal communities look at their own stories of trauma and resilience. We started on the White Earth and Fond du Lac reservations, giving presentations on the relationship between what we experience as children and how we grow up and live. The responses we were getting were really strong, really powerful. And after one presentation, someone from the White Earth radio station came up and said, we need to do a radio series on adverse childhood experience and resilience in tribal communities. My friend David Knoyer wanted to help. He's a former journalist and digital story producer. We started recording. Hi, I'm Susan Bolio. I'm the director of tribal projects at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children. That's me in a recording studio a while ago when we started recording conversations among ourselves and other guests. <clears throat> and I'm David Knoyer, a member of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe and uh, someone who does a lot of facilitation of groups where these issues almost always come up. Someone dealing with daily stress or long-term trauma in their lives. Susan and I are going to be joined in the studio by Kim Lage a member of the White Earth Nation who does a lot of work with early childhood. childhood so I took my audio recorder on travels across Minnesota and the rest of Indian country. Through all the interviews, conversations, and meetings, it became clear that a lot of people are interested in not just talking about trauma, but taking action to address it, to hear and understand the new research, see that it can confirm what indigenous wisdom already teaches about the power of relationships, and to reawaken what's inside us and remember ourselves beyond trauma. Recording this podcast became itself a journey, our stories, our struggles, our lessons, and our possibilities. There are reasons we are battling addiction, suicide, diabetes, heart disease, and poverty, and recent research is giving us new ways to understand them. Trauma has roots in historical events and atrocities. Trauma can be transmitted intergenerationally, from mother to baby. We're also seeing that historical trauma play out today in the abuse or neglect that our children and youth experience. We will look at neurobiology, the physical and biological impact of trauma on our brains, bodies, genetics, and epigenetics. We'll look at resiliency, and we'll consider Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs. This acronym is a psychological term for different types of childhood trauma that can affect us later in life. David and I will be narrating this story together. We're going to go back through the conversations we had and draw out what we learned along the way. Our guests will take you out of the studio, too, to the places where sacred knowledge and science might meet, in classrooms, ceremonies, or everyday exchanges, and we're grateful for you listeners joining us along the way. By bringing this podcast to you, our goals are greater awareness and self-awareness of what's happened to us, not what's wrong with us. When I think about this work, it reminds me of this fable that's often told in public health circles. It's about a group of people saving babies that are drowning in a river. They're making heroic efforts over and over again to rescue infants that are, strangely, stranded in the water. But every time they get one baby to safety, they turn around and there's another one drowning. The community creates elaborate systems for pulling the babies out of the water and saving them. But they grow tired and weary because they do this day in and day out. Finally, someone points out that maybe someone ought to go upstream, go further up the river and figure out why these babies keep ending up in the river in the first place. 
It's a story about getting to the root of things and why so much work in social services can be futile if we aren't using more holistic approaches that consider the origin of the problem. So many programs address just the symptoms rather than the root causes. In this first episode, we want to start by addressing the concept of historical trauma. The reality is that a lot of indigenous experience today has its origins in the traumatic history of settler colonialism, the loss of land, of language, the attack on who we are as positive, creative, powerful, loving cultures. Every day still, these things are with us. They now take the form of broken relationships, violence, disease, and even early death. The new science traces much of it to trauma. Dealing with our struggles today without dealing with the past feels like failing to walk upstream to see where the real problem of drowning babies begins, to historical trauma. Lindsay McMurrin is one of my colleagues in the Tribal Near Sciences and Community Wisdom Project. We talked about these issues together a lot. My name is Lindsay McMurrin, and I am a citizen of the Leech Lake Nation. I am a mother of two, and with the Tribal Project, I am working in my home community of Leech Lake. We sought out Lindsay's lessons about historical trauma to explore why it's relevant to our work now. Historical trauma is defined by Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart as the cumulative emotional and psychological wounding across generations, including the lifespan, which emanates from massive group trauma. Cumulative, emotional, psychological wounding across generations. In this definition, the trauma is heavy and deep, not a one-time wound. It was a wounding, still happening, a cumulative wounding that adds up. With the ripple effects of trauma, it's still adding up. This is a concept that we'll revisit over and over in this podcast and others. Susan and Lindsay went more into the details of history. One example of historical trauma is the boarding school era and children being removed from their families, from their communities, oftentimes removed at great distances so that they couldn't get home very often. Susan was referring there to a period of nearly 100 years, from the 1880s well into the 1970s, when Native children were sent to boarding schools, sometimes forcibly by Christian missionaries and then by the federal government. This was happening while the Army Cavalry was forcing the last Indian fighters onto permanent reservations. The Wounded Knee Massacre at Pine Ridge in 1890 generally is considered the end of the military conquest, but the Indian Wars continued through a policy of boarding schools. My grandmother was a great-granddaughter of Chief Spotted Tail, who was an uncle of the warrior Crazy Horse. When my grandmother left the Rosebud Reservation for boarding school in Nebraska, she came back and later did not teach her children her Lakota language. She was taught that it was no good. The ultimate goal of the boarding schools was assimilation, was to assimilate the children to become white, to look white, to act white, to get rid of the Indian problem, so to speak. Um, And so some of the things that we know that occurred um, through that was, you know, of course, the removal from family systems, couldn't speak the language, you were punished severely often if you spoke your indigenous language, your hair was cut, and we know that hair is a very sacred thing, and our names were changed. Uh, Often, sometimes kids were just given numbers, they weren't even given names. 
But in addition, there was corporal punishment. There was a lot of sexual abuse, physical abuse, things that happened. Um, a lot of times the schools were underfunded. And so a lot of times kids were living on, on subsistence diets. They were, in addition to going to school, learning how to read and write, they were expected to work. So a lot of them were working long hours, cooking, cleaning, tending to the garden, those types of things. We've seen pictures of Native children at boarding school lined up in straight rows, solemn-looking, even militaristic. We know today that learning should build on students' innate experience and their families' funds of knowledge. Children learn best from a place of safety and security. The boarding schools instead used insecurity, judgment, punishment, and threat. The boarding school era overlapped with other government policies to take Indian land, natural resources, and culture. That's 100 years of our community's very social structure ripped apart. The rich relationships intentionally broken, replaced with dysfunction still with us today. There also is the foster care and adoption era. During that time, um, as many as one-third of Native children were separated from their families uh, between the years of 1941 and 1967. During that era, almost any issue, from minor to really serious, uh, could precipitate the loss of a Native child. And as was often the case, there was no home study or comparable investigation um, necessary to support the removal. Um, of the Native children removed from their families between 1941 and 1967, 85% of those children were placed in non-Native homes or institutions. Mm-hmm. When you think about that and, and its implications, it's just um, astounding. It is astounding. Those are intergenerational wounds, woundings. Consider the contrast with how traditionally Native people raised our children with utmost care and respect. The Lakota word for children is wakanija, which means sacred beings. Sacred, with a positive core and gifts waiting to be discovered. The gifts emerge by letting the child explore, providing gentle guidance and nurturing, not direction, punishment, or coercion. The child as sacred being is part of a circle of family and extended family, all supportive, nurturing relatives. The government destroyed this sacred bond. In our indigenous communities, corporal punishment didn't exist. We saw children as sacred beings. We treated them as sacred beings. Um, We taught through example and through sharing of knowledge. An example for me that really resonates as a mother is if... um, if generation after generation after generation are experiencing these things in the boarding school of corporal punishment and not being connected to family and community and relationships being severed, um, we often parent how we were parented. These abuses and neglects and things like that are occurring. It's very likely that those are the types of behaviors that when you become a parent, you utilize. When my grandmother came home from boarding school with lessons that her own language, the language of her grandfathers, the tribal chiefs, was no good, it's pretty easy to see where Native people learned shame and blame. In that sacred circle, positive relationships were everything. When the circle was broken, and when the cultural traditions, values, and language holding it together were judged to be no good, then the oppression went lateral. It was no longer just the government hurting us. 
We had been conditioned to hurt ourselves, to hurt even those sacred little ones, the children. Hurt people hurt themselves, and hurt people hurt others. Uh, you can't help but think about um, what's still happening. Um, for instance, right now, less than 2% of children in Minnesota are Native, yet, yet they make up nearly one quarter of the state's foster care population. Mm -hmm. You know, Minnesota is number one in the nation for removal of American Indian children. Our Native kids are 16.9 times more likely than white children to experience out-of-home care. So I think it's so important to realize that historical trauma is not just about what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. It's about what is still happening. So in a way, historical trauma is about passing down negative parenting practices through generations. Instead of practicing respect for the sacred baby, we abuse her. The cultural values of love and respect can't compete with the cumulative trauma amplified by contemporary life's challenges, poverty, stress, addiction, even a flat tire. Later, we'll also talk about how these experiences can actually be passed down genetically, how they might be imprinted on our brains. But here's the thing about talking with Native Americans about trauma. We've heard a lot about it by now. I don't bring it up often, you know, because we're so tired of hearing the word trauma all the time, you know. I know I am. You're traumatized, we're traumatized, you know, we're working with trauma. That's Janice Bad Moccasin, who does a lot of culturally grounded healing work in the Native community. We'll hear much more from her in later episodes, but her experience is relevant here. Native people are a bit tired of trauma talk. That's because it's exhausting to talk about what's wrong. We're ready to talk about what we want, which is more energizing. Also, trauma is old news to Native people. We knew it was real long ago. There were ceremonies to welcome warriors home from battle, to deal with battlefield trauma. Ceremonies to deal with grief. While natives have long known trauma is legitimate, America swept the history under the rug, and Indians were told to just get over it. Now that more quote-unquote experts and frontline social service providers finally are beginning to acknowledge the impact of historical trauma and other trauma, natives are naturally skeptical. The fear is that now that the outside experts have validated trauma, they're going to let Native people use only those solutions also validated by those outside experts. It's not all that different from the prejudgment used to justify boarding schools. So often in our tribal communities, uh, we have entities coming in from the outside asking to study us or asking to do research upon us, um, where that modus of control always comes from an outside entity. Native people need space and support to identify Native solutions. Call it whatever you want, reclaiming, reawakening, restoring, our own Indigenous ways of being with one another that are inherently about healing, supporting sacred connections, and helping people find their own path. This work then, this story, is about using the knowledge and acknowledgement of historical trauma, fused with our Indigenous wisdom, to reassume our own agency to process and heal with one another. It can become a tool for better understanding ourselves and reassuming our power. And we already have examples in our community of people showing us this can be done, people who understand these connections intuitively. Janice Bad Moccasin is one of them. I mostly, in the context, will address it sometimes as soul wounds, you know, because, you know, um, 
it's about understanding what's going on uh, because a lot of people from their stories carried um, those soul wounds and they become became health issues things that they weren't allowed to think act and feel which was passed down from generations where we become conditioned that way we had to understand the impact of our ancestors. The more we were in tribal communities doing the work, the more clearly we heard that when we take back the narrative on trauma, when we mobilize it for ourselves, revitalize its role in understanding our history and in seeking healing, it becomes a powerful tool for shifting perspectives and reorientating how we address problems in Native communities. This is important to many, if not most, Native people. Stereotypes run rampant in dominant society. If the average American even knows that 567-some tribes are in full existence in these United States today, not relegated to old, dead-and-gone pictures on the wall. Until dominant society stops teaching and reinforcing a message that Natives are inferior savages, it's hard for any healing to happen. And when I think about some of the stereotypes of the drunken Indian and how in boarding schools we were taught to be ashamed of who we were and the languages that we spoke and the way that we dressed and we were talked about as savages and really negative language that was used to describe us as a people, the the practices, the culture, all of that. I started thinking, how much is there a connection between all of the shaming that's happened for for hundreds of years, again, you know, for indigenous peoples with really high rates of things like addiction and depression and mental health issues? A lot of times what we tend to see is the problem. So smoking, addiction, obesity, those types of things. So how many programs and, and things do we have that deal with substance use or deal with, you know... All of these things that we see as the problem, but really they are coping strategies for what the real problem is. We have to go back to the baby. Remember the babies in the river who are drowning and need to be saved at a spot way upstream before they fall in? Getting to the root cause of trauma helps us see how we have stopped believing in ourselves and in each other. These symptoms are not our fault. The question is not what's wrong with us, it's what happened to us. We remain powerful people with a powerful past and potentially powerful future. As traditional Cheyenne chief Philip Whiteman Jr. says, we are all spirits in human bodies. How do we see the best in people? How do we help them see their own gifts and power? Understanding problems in our communities and our homes as symptoms of trauma allows us to reframe our struggle, to lift our people up, our culture, our history, for the strength we contain as its inheritors. That's been a powerful realization in this process for all of us you've been hearing in this episode. It's one of the things that I believe with everything, every fiber in my being is that our ancestors went through a lot of trauma and they survived. And that in and of itself is a a testimony to, to the incredible strength that they had. And I feel like our ancestors, if they were to come back here today in this moment, they would not want us just to survive. They would want us to get back to thriving. 
the first step is really understanding the full reality and the implications of our combined histories and experiences. That is is the first step toward healing. It's imperative that we understand where we've been so that we can utilize that knowledge to create more equitable pathways that enable everyone to navigate where, where we are headed in the future. However, understanding is only as powerful as the action that follows. You know, ultimately, it's possible to arrive where we need to be, but only if we choose to travel those roads together. That's really where we want this work to lead us, to real interventions that reshape the paths our children, our families, our communities are going to travel in the future. And one fact that has been incredibly obscured by all this trauma, we already possessed a lot of what is needed for this process, and we still possess it even if it needs to be nurtured now from the seeds that have been left to us. When we look at resilience literature and best practices, um, so much of what we know works in communities was already built in to our tribal systems, to our Mm -hmm. culture, into our natural ways of being. So, you know, our greatest hope for this work, like Susan said, is really to to reawaken that. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not, it is not lost. I feel the latent effects of assimilation in a city native raised by bright light skyscrapers born with dim prospects little peace in living as a child I heard about the fact I wasn't wild like they called my This has ancestors. been the first episode of Remembering Resilience a podcast on native resilience through and beyond trauma narrated by me Susan Bolio and David Knoyer Thank you for listening to our reflections on the concept of historical trauma why we struggle with it and why we think it matters in upcoming episodes, we'll hear more from community members like Janice Bad Moxon and more of the stories that bring these concepts alive. But first, we're going to take you a little deeper into the science on trauma. Tune in to episode two to learn more about the ideas and programming Susan and Lindsay McMurrin have been sharing about adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, why their work is important, and how it's resonated in tribal communities they've been working with. Get your money, do we do cowishin? Jimushka with yan, me Dutch for me, it is a yan. Me shishanam, I get you white when gnu shishanam, bizin down with shanam, me wine jinakam of yan. Me mashom is we do cowishanam, jit I budget too young, anishinabe is your swawin. Me jit big, it came to my kaya, anishinabe, then my dizzy win. You just heard Minneapolis-based rapper Tall Paul, and we want to extend a thank you to him and the other Native artists that contributed music to this episode, including Thomas X, Wade Fernandez, Leah Lem and Molecular Machine, and the Red Tree Singers. Inspiration for this series comes from a growing number of Indigenous people and allies who are working to address resilience in the Native community. This includes podcast hosts Susan Bolio and David Knoyer, as well as other voices and stories they gathered for this series, including those of Lindsay McMurrin, Janice Bad Moccasin, and participants in Network Weaver's group meetings, all of whom you heard during this episode. Sierra Edwards also assisted them in gathering interviews and stories. Sadie Lutmer acted as coordinating producer on this episode, with sound design and additional instrumentals by Kaylin Keir. This series was supported by staff at Minnesota Communities Caring for Children and funded by the Blue Cross Blue Shield Center for Prevention. For more information, visit the podcast webpage at rememberingresilience.home.blog.